Section 14 of Wellington by George Hooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Waterloo, Part 2. The results of two days' warfare may be thus summed up. Napoleon had inflicted a defeat, yet not a decisive defeat, upon the Prussians, who escaped from his ken to Havre. He had then, at a late hour on the 17th, detached Grouchy with 33,000 men to follow them, and Grouchy at night, from Jean Blou, reported that they had retired in three directions. Moving himself in the afternoon, Napoleon, uniting with Ney, had pursued Wellington to Mont-Saint-Jean, and slept in the comfortable belief that he had separated the Allies. At that very time, Wellington, who had assembled his whole force except 17,000 men, including the British brigades, who were posted at Halle and Toubise, was in close communication with Blücher, and intended on the 18th to stop Napoleon by delivering battle, and to hold him fast until Blücher could cut in on his right flank and rear. Thus it was the Allies, who were united practically, and the French army, which was separated into two groups, unable to support each other. Considering that in the estimation of a modern school of English military critics, Wellington and Blücher were second- or third-rate generals, and that the former roughly pitched his estimate of Napoleon's presence at 40,000 men, the facts on the evening of the 17th tell rather in favor of second-rate generalship. But the truth is that the military critics, after years of investigation and deep study, possess a knowledge not vouchsafed to either Napoleon or Wellington, and its fruit is the kind of judgment, après coup, which is supposed to be so instructive and is often so unjust. What would Napoleon or Wellington or both not have given for one tithe of the exact information which enables criticism to make use of the advantage which its enlarged horizon affords, that is, to judge the generals by a series of facts and results which were not and could not have been known to them at the time. The tempest which burst over the retreating columns on the 17th followed them to their bivouacs and raged all night, and did not cease until late on the fateful Sunday. Wellington, mounting his faithful Copenhagen at break of day, rode from the village of Waterloo to the field, where the armies on both sides, protected by watchful sentries, were still contending with the mischiefs inflicted by the storm. The position was the crest of a gentle slope, stretching from Smoin to the Nivelle Road, having upon and in advance of its right the chateau, garden, and wood of Hougomont, and in the centre, where the Charlevoix road cut through the little ridge, the farm of La Haye-Sainte. Both these posts were occupied, but the latter, unfortunately, not so solidly as Hougomont. The greater portion of the Allied army forming the right and centre was on the west, and the left along the Wave crossroad on the eastern side of the highway. Behind Hougomont, the ground trended back toward bren la and Meilleur-Bren, and here the reserves were posted. It was indeed, combined with Hougomont, the storehouse and strength of battle. The front, about two miles long, was held by infantry and guns. The cavalry, except two light brigades on the extreme left, were in rear on the gentle northern slope, and invisible from the French position. 
behind all were the dutch belgian cavalry the brunswickers and after the action had begun lambert's british brigade from ghent the position was well filled by the sixty-nine thousand men of all arms and one hundred and fifty-six guns which were present that day napoleon who slept at the farm of caillou and who had been out on foot to the front during the night was also early in the field and glad of the gift which he thought fortune had placed in his hands when Ray had joined him from Genappe, he had seventy-two thousand men, all admirable soldiers, and two hundred and forty guns, with which to engage in combat, and he reckoned that the chances were ninety to ten in his favour. He mounted his charger, reconnoitred his opponent's position, and then gave the orders which promptly and finally obeyed, disclosed the French array there were two lines of infantry two of heavy cavalry backed by a reserve of both arms and finally the imposing masses of the imperial guard the front stretched from frichermont across the charlerois to the nivelle road and one may imagine with what admiration and interest wellington and his officers watched the formation of that grand example of order and power and listened to the outcries which greeted the emperor when he rode along his majestic lines it was now nearly eleven o'clock and although his opponent knew it not wellington had got news of the march from wavre of bulow whose leading troops were actually at that time close to the wood of st lambert on the french right while grouchy was at sar les between jean bleu and wavre it is not practicable here to give a full account of the battle of waterloo we can only describe its broad outlines the first gun was fired about twenty or thirty minutes past eleven and preluded a dashing and sustained attack on hougemont which failed to carry the house garden or orchard but did gain the wood it was probably intended to divert attention from the attack on the left and centre which ney massing his guns opposite the british left was preparing to execute wellington watched and in some measure controlled the fight for hougemont and then rode off to the centre taking post at a solitary tree which grew near the Charlevoix road above la Sainte. nay at half-past one sent forward the whole of derlon's corps and although some of them pushed up close to and over the wavre road stormed the orchard of la Sainte and took the Paplot farm yet at the critical moment sir william ponsonby's union brigade of horse charged into the french infantry already shattered by the fire of picton's troops and the net result of the combined operation was that two eagles and three thousand prisoners were captured while nearly all that number of killed and wounded remained on the ground on the other side of la Sainte, the household brigade led by lord anglesey in person charged in upon and routed a large body of french cuirassiers the grand attack thus completely failed and the centre like the right remained intact it was just before this combat began that napoleon saw something like troops towards st lambert and dispatched two brigades of light cavalry to reconnoitre a prussian staff officer was caught beyond planchenois and from him came the unexpected and unwelcome information that the whole prussian army was approaching and after the defeat of derlon napoleon detached lobo's troops to cover his right the imperial guard moving up from rossum to take his place 
so that the two heavy blows came almost together and the force pressing on wellington was reduced by more than ten thousand men the first fruit of the steady prussian advance the signs of danger on his right flank the punishment of derlon's corps the ineffectual attempt upon the british guards in and about hougomont were followed by a kind of pause and the combat reverted to cannonading and skirmishing but toward four o'clock napoleon increasing the fire of his artillery threw forward a mass of cavalry forty squadrons and then began that series of reiterated onsets of horse which lasted for two hours their advent was foreseen and the infantry west of the charleroi road went at once into squares and oblongs a form devised by major afterwards sir james shaw kennedy so that the horse which rode through the batteries in the crest wasted themselves in vain against the intrepid infantry twice they were driven down the slope and the third time when they came on they were strengthened by kellermann and guillot until they reached a force of seventy-seven squadrons or twelve thousand men but these also were repulsed the british horse what remained of them charging when the french were entangled among the squares and disordered by the musketry and guns four times these fine troopers charged yet utterly failed to penetrate or move a single foot battalion but some time before the final effort ney by a fierce attack got possession of la Sainte, and thus just as the cavalry were exhausted the french infantry were established within sixty yards of the allied centre and although the emperor was obliged to detach one half of his guard to the right because blucher had brought into play beyond planchenois against lobo nearly thirty thousand men still the capture of la Sainte was justly regarded as a grave event wellington during the cavalry fight had moved three brigades on his right nearer to hougomont and had called up chasse and his belgians to support them and it was a little before this time that he cried out to brigadier-general adam by god adam i think we shall beat them yet a little later shaw kennedy in some trepidation rode up to the duke to report that the centre of the line was open for the hanoverians had been wasted away by the ceaseless fire this very startling information he received with a degree of coolness and replied to with such precision and energy as to prove the most complete self-possession he said to kennedy i shall order the brunswick troops to the spot and other troops besides go you and get all the german troops of the division to the spot that you can and all the guns that you can find the duke himself led forward the brunswickers the hanoverians and nassauers rallied vivian's cavalry rode up from the left where Zieten's advance was in sight the danger passed away and wellington rode back to the rear of the foot guards the crisis of the battle had come for napoleon unable after eight hours conflict to do more than capture la Sainte, hardly pressed by the prussians now strong and aggressive owing such success as he had obtained to the valour and discipline of his soldiers the emperor delivered his last stroke not for victory he could no longer hope to win but for safety he sent forward the last ten battalions of his guard to assail the british right and directed the whole remaining infantry force available to attack all along the line the guard marched onward in two columns which came successively in contact with their opponents napier's guns and the british guards 
who rising from the ground showed across the head of the first column fired heavily and charging drove them in confusion back toward la belle alliance and the second column struck in flank by the musketry of the fifty second and ninety fifth were next broken by a bayonet charge and pursued by colonel colburn to and beyond the charlois road as Tsiten's prussians were falling upon the french near Paplotte and pire and bulot wrestling with the imperial guard in planchenois wellington ordered the whole of the british line to advance the cheers arising on the right where he was extended along the front and gave new strength to the wearied soldiers he led the way as he neared the charlois road the riflemen full of peninsular memories began to cheer him as he galloped up but he called out no cheering my lads forward and complete your victory he found that good soldier colburn halted for a moment before three squares of the rallied imperial guard go on colburn he said better attack them they won't stand nor did they wellington then turned to the right where vivian's light cavalry were active in the gloom and we next find him once more with the fifty-second near rossomme the farthest point of the advance where that regiment halted after its grand march over the battlefield somewhere on the highway he met blucher who had so nobly kept his word and it was then that gneisen now undertook to chase the fugitives over the frontier the french or perhaps we should say the napoleonic army was destroyed and the power which its mighty leader had built up on the basis of its astonishing successes was gone forever wellington returned to the village of waterloo that night and as he dismounted after having been so many hours in the saddle his trusty copenhagen still fresh gave a playful kick remembered by his master in after years how he felt after his well-won triumph has been often recorded the man who has been lightly accused of having a cold heart wept bitterly when the strain of duty was relaxed and he saw the list of killed and wounded what can better illustrate the iciness of his nature than the expressive saying drawn from him by waterloo that nothing is worse than a victory except a defeat or the manly pathos of his letters to the relatives of his dead friends but there was nothing of the actor about him and that defect if it be one is mistaken for cold insensibility by the lovers of the theatrical element in daily life as well as in war dr holm found him in bed early on the morning of the nineteenth he had as usual taken off his clothes but had not washed himself as i entered he sat up in bed his face covered with the dust and sweat of the previous day and extended his hand to me which i took and held in mine whilst i told him of gordon's death and of such of the casualties as had come to my knowledge he was much affected i felt the tears dropping fast upon my hand and looking toward him saw them chasing one another in furrows over his dusty cheeks that is a picture of private life and it is not the only example of wellington's genuine tenderness of heart exhibited in the quiet days of peace as well as on the morrow of a tragic victory what was his share in the supreme triumph achieved on the eighteenth of june eighteen fifteen after years of eager investigation it has been discovered that he should have fortified and garrisoned the farm buildings of la Sainte with more care and that he should have summoned colville's two british brigades from hal these were the two heinous faults which minish his renown 
although committing them he still won the day next it is said not however by the same order of minds that he owed his success to the prussians certainly just as the prussians owed their success to the british the latter had been fighting stiffly for five hours before a prussian shot was fired and they fought on for nine hours but that was the bargain wellington was to run the great hazards of a battle long enough to bring the prussians into action and he redeemed his pledged word not less assuredly than blucher a worthy comrade redeemed his not merely by fighting which came later but by pushing forward bulow's leading troops which compelled napoleon to detach lobo as early as two o'clock the full stress of the prussian battle was not developed until six o'clock and even then the defeat of the imperial guard preceded the capture of planchenois but why dispute over shares of glory when there is so much for all it is not necessary to follow the allied armies in their march on paris and it may be sufficient to say that on july third fifteen days after the rout of waterloo hostility ceased paris capitulated the french army retired beyond the loire and on the eighth the bourbon king entered the capital of france wellington had done all he could to restrain the anger of blucher who wished to hang napoleon if he caught him and blow up the bridge of jena the emperor fled to rochefort and the bellerophon escaping from blucher to the perpetual exile of st helena and wellington rescued the bridge from destruction by reason and good management to his great influence also france was indebted for the slight territorial changes made in her frontier practically his active military life ended on july third eighteen fifteen but he sojourned in france three years longer in command of the army of occupation during that period he was requested to adjust and did adjust the many grave questions arising out of claims on france and counterclaims by the french he reduced the amount against her by nearly one-fourth and finally although adverse to his own personal interests he persuaded the allied sovereigns to terminate the occupation which by treaty might have continued for some years he never afterwards commanded an army in the field his career as a man of action was over and now we may glance back on that career and ask whether it is or is not the career of a great captain the question is not so foolish as it looks because high authority has recently denied him a place in the foremost rank of commanders lord wolseley has declared that wellington cannot be placed in the first line of generals because he did not secure or even try to secure the affection of his soldiers certainly that never was the motive of his conduct he had a totally different idea of the duty alike of citizen and soldier that idea he always tried his utmost to realize and it was not to make himself beloved but to perform his task faithfully and if possible which was not easy make others perform theirs but if he was not adored like napoleon he was loved by the men he led so well for if not why did napier print that truthful and touching dedication which stands on the first page of his immortal book this history he wrote i dedicate to your grace because i have served long enough under your command to know why the soldiers of the tenth legion were attached to caesar no troops ever followed any general with more alacrity stood fast with more unconquerable determination or at his word started joyously forward into more deadly perils 
than the British and even the Portuguese soldiers of Wellington's armies. Lord Wolseley also asserts that if Napoleon had been the man he was at Austerlitz, he would have won the Battle of Waterloo. It is a pure hypothesis, and about as reasonable as one which might be framed thus, if Soult or Clausel instead of Araby had commanded the Egyptian army in 1882, Sir Garnet Wolseley would not have won the battle of Tel el-Kabir. What is the value of criticism which alters all the conditions on one side and does not venture to alter them on the other? Napoleon and Wellington and Blücher fought out their fight in the circumstances existing between the 14th and 19th of June, we can only judge them by the light of those circumstances. All else is pure fantasy, and if the greatest general is he who makes the fewest mistakes and does not wage war on conjectural grounds, then Wellington was the greater on the fields of Belgium, for incontestably he made fewer mistakes and acted on fewer and less dangerous conjectures than his mighty antagonist. It is an idle controversy. The intellectual greatness of Napoleon is as manifest as his selfishness and freedom from the fetters of moral principle, but it was the radical vices of his nature which rendered his vast, we might say, supreme intellect of no avail, and sent him to finish his turbulent life in the dreariness of exile. That form of intellectual activity which is called military genius is, when free from the restraints of all moral principle, a curse to mankind and that will be an ill day for England when her generals come to prefer and adore such a form, for it makes the soldier of genius master of the state for personal objects, instead of being what he should be, the servant alike of the state and of the loftiest idea of duty. Wellington throughout his life used his abilities, call them talents or genius, not to magnify himself, but to serve his country according to his lights, if he is not entitled to rank with the foremost, to be not the greatest, but among the few great captains, it would be interesting to know in what military greatness consists. He succeeded in all he undertook. His Indian career alone presents a model of what a soldier should be, and should have exempted him from the foolish charge of being timid and overcautious, wanting in vigor and decision. We may be allowed to measure a man's genius if that is the correct word, by the relations which his means bear to the ends he attains. Except Frederick II and Bonaparte in Italy, no generals in modern times have performed so much as Wellington with such scanty and uncertain resources. We have also to remember his boundless confidence, his inexhaustible patience in gloom as well as sunshine, and imagine, if we can, the kind of courage it required to face and overcome the endless obstacles raised by the British, Portuguese, and Spanish governments. If we adopt for once the practice of indulging in suppositions, let us ask what might not Wellington have been able to accomplish had he possessed, like Napoleon, absolute command over the wealth and manhood of England, Spain, and Portugal, instead of being obliged to beg for a small army of Britons, deal as best he could with the regency at lisbon and the cortes at seville or cadiz and perform in turn all parts civil as well as military which the exigencies of the movement or the paucity of competent men demanded from day to day quite apart from the crowning event of waterloo there is ample room in the indian and peninsular campaigns of wellington to give him a place among the foremost warriors 
with a little army says charat he did great things and that army was his work he should remain and he will remain one of the grandest military figures of this century it is a just verdict and we heartily trust that regardless of party and faction and self-interest england's generals and for reasons as valid whether they be styled men of genius or men of talent will always deserve to be ranked with wellington as the servants of duty and their country end of section fourteen